This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Slavery is banned in Colorado, with one exception, for the punishment of a crime. This election, Colorado voters will decide whether to remove that provision from the state's constitution. There is no organized opposition to the ballot measure, Amendment T, so you'll not hear a debate today. Uh, Joining us is Will Dickerson with Together Colorado, a multi-faith organization leading the Yes on T campaign, and Melissa Hart, director of the Byron R. White Center for the Study of Constitutional Law at CU Boulder. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. The Colorado Constitution currently states, quote, there shall never be in this state either slavery or involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. A yes vote on Amendment T would strike that exception from the Constitution. Uh, Will, why do you think it's important to get rid of these 14 words? Yeah, so um, for me, it's it's really important for us to really reflect um, values. Um, so we believe that words matter, mm-hmm. right? And when I think about the idea of slavery, the legacy that it holds, the the death and the hurt, the pain, the violence that was inflicted upon particularly um, African Americans during that period of time, there is a there's a long lasting pain that's that sits in that. And so, you know, I don't believe that the state that I grew up in, that I live in, that I'm from, <laughs> uh, actually has those values. Like, I know the state well. I know the people well. And I don't believe that, that we have the values of uh, having slavery under any circumstances whatsoever. And so I believe that this is a really, uh, a really easy vote for folks. So is this a largely symbolic thing for you or, or is it something more as well? Well, um, in some ways it's symbolic, Right. In other ways, I think it raises the question for people on what we actually believe, what our um, what our constitution reflects. Um, And I think that it raises the consciousness of people around, like, what does it mean to enslave people? What does it mean to have that kind of writing in the constitution? It's a question that should be raised in our hearts, I think. And the language was written in 1876 into our Constitution. Mm -hmm. It appears in the state's ratified Constitution, Article 2, Section 26, from that time on. I understand you learned about the clause while working with a colleague on research around mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. You first discovered it in the U.S. Constitution and and then in Colorado's. Mm -hmm. What was your initial reaction? Yeah, so – for both of us, uh, the, the colleague you're talking about is uh, Jamoki Emery. He's a really great friend of mine, a brother of mine. And uh, when, he, you know, when he brought it up, uh, it was, it, I was angry about it at first. Um, and then you know, I really had this reaction of sadness um, as well. And so um, for me, it really lit a fire under me around, you know, what can we do to, to get this removed? And, um, and what can we do to... Uh, to, to get us moving into the 21st century. And, you know, Jamoki led those efforts um, in the beginning and, you know, did a great job, did all the research and all the hard, hard, hard work of this. So. The ballot question uh, that you put forward was not brought by a citizen's initiative, uh, but was referred to the November ballot after the proposal passed through the state legislature. How did the issue get on lawmakers' uh, radar? Yeah, so that um, that falls with uh, Jamoki Emery as well. So he was um, he he was a community organizer that was working with Together Colorado at the time, and um, like I said, he was doing a lot of research. He was sitting down with a lot of uh, um, senators, representatives, and uh, finally we we came to uh, Senator Ulibarri, 
uh, Jesse Ulibarri, who uh, from Adams um, County, a Democrat. Yes, exactly. And uh, he, you know, was really excited about it. He said, yeah, I think I I want to work with you all to, to get this thing passed through. I think it's time. Melissa, help us understand the history behind this language. It's written nearly verbatim uh, in the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. It's still there. Uh, and that amendment was added following the end of the Civil War. Why was that provision included at that time? So that's right. There are a number of different reasons that the provision was included. It actually was taken directly from the Northwest Ordinance, um, which is the the agreement that determined how the Western territories in the United States would be added uh, as states moving forward. Um, so it dates back long even before the Civil War. Um, the, all of the states that were added uh, out of our, these Western territories were non-slave states by, by law, um, but they included this provision that uh, they were non-slave states except as a condition – except as punishment for a crime – and that there was sort of a, a, a moral judgment there that hard work was essential to moral rehabilitation, which was part of what we were trying to do. At that time, there was a view that you could re- rehabilitate um, people who had been convicted of crime. So that was a piece of it. Although when you look at the history following the Civil War, um, that that moral positive moral judgment was accompanied, particularly in the southern states, but, but really all over the country, um, by um, – by a sense that that this punishment as a uh, for for a crime could be could be used essentially to replace slavery as a way to ensure um, uh, ample free labor and um, really oppression of black people again particularly in the South so that if you look at the time during and after Reconstruction there was really there was mass incarceration at that time too and um, con- convicts were a source of free labor to replace the free labor that had been slavery. So why would that language not be revisited and revised years later? Why is it still in our U.S. Constitution and a number of constitutions across the the country? Right. Um, Well, I think there are a couple of different reasons. A lot of people aren't aware that it's there. So some of it is uh, raising awareness is the first step to changing something like this. And and that's part of what I think Together Colorado is doing. This is an issue that's really coming up all over the country as well. Um, There are other states talking about it. Um, but I think there's some um, – although there's not opposition to it that's vocal and active, the truth is that it's still true today that convicts are a source of very cheap labor in states all over the country. And there may be resistance to changing it because of the possibility that that will change as well. The This measure comes at a time when prisoners, like you said, are, are around the country are, are sometimes striking, uh, asking for fair wages, uh, the economic yield – of federal and state inmates is around $2 billion per year. Uh, and that's according to estimates from the Prison Policy Initiative. Uh, you're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're discussing Amendment T, the ballot measure proposes removing language from Colorado's constitution that allows slavery to be used as a punishment for a crime. Joining me today are Will Dickerson from the community organization Together Colorado and Melissa Hart, who teaches and studies cultural law at CU Boulder. As I mentioned, there's no organized opposition to this measure, but the ballot analysis says you'll find that, of course, in the Colorado Blue Book, that opponents were concerned about striking the language and that it could amount to legal uncertainty around inmate work 
and community service programs. We reached out to the Colorado Department of Corrections. Uh, the DOC says it does not have a position on Amendment T and that work programs are, quote, designed to provide offenders with valuable skills to enhance their employment prospects from release and are entirely voluntary. Um, Will, how do you respond to the notion that a yes on T could raise questions about the legality of these programs? Yeah, so so in the, the research that we, you know, that uh, that we had carried out in the very beginning of this and the conversations that we had with the legislature, um, our legislators, um, uh, really brought us to the conclusion that in terms of the work itself of removing the language, that it wouldn't actually impact anything that prisons are doing as of right this moment. That this is about like removing the language itself. Um, if you if you read this right, um, the language itself is is saying that there's an exception, you know, for slavery. Hmm. And regardless about what you believe about how you know people um, who have been incarcerated um, should be punished, or um, uh, or whether or not you believe that there should be re- rehabilitation, or all those different pieces, is irrelevant to the fact that in our constitution the language reads in such a way uh, that. At any moment of any time, a person could decide that they want to enslave somebody based around those things. So not necessarily that the conversation could be had that 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 is happening already. But even if you don't believe that, we were really pushing on this idea that we want to we want to remove it because we don't ever want that to be even an option. What Melissa, as someone who studies and teaches constitutional law, what do you think about that? You know, I, I think Will started out by saying words matter. And, and I do think uh, both as a as a law professor and then I, I do a lot of work with high school students uh, and I'm a mom of two middle school kids. Um, and I every time we have the conversation across all of those ages about the fact that our U.S. Constitution still includes all of the original provisions valuing black lives at three-fifths rather than a full life and that the 13th Amendment still includes slavery, that slavery was not, in fact, abolished. It was mostly abolished, but not entirely abolished. I find that that the kids thinking about it and talking about it see that that's wrong. Uh, it's really problematic. It does feel like it's a statement about who we are as people. Uh, so I I think that there is some value to really separating the questions of what will happen. The conversation about work in prison uh, is going to go on. It's going on now with this language there. But taking that moral stand and saying this language is not who we are and what we want to be, I actually think has a lot of value. And I, I think it is fair to say that the cultural and symbolic implications here aren't in question. Uh, but could one see, Will, that maybe removing of this language could put uh, court-ordered community service or or doing something as opposed to paying a fine into question? Yeah, so I, the way you ask that question is interesting. So I would say, yeah, <laughs> someone could look at it that way. And I think that that's why the, you know, the Blue Book itself – um, has that kind of written in into it in terms of being like at least some kind of opposition that there is a there could be a question around that. Um, all the study that we've done um, really really sh- shows that the language itself and it being removed doesn't actually impact anything, right? In in that particular way, um, again, it raises it raises questions and raises opportunity for people to have a larger conversation about this. Um, but removing it actually wouldn't change any of those things. And I think R- Vermont particularly gives a, a perfect example of that. Vermont being the only state that never put in the exception. 
uh, for slavery. So they have um, they do have the the slavery amendment. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't have an exception in it. And and in Vermont, uh, it says community service and work programs are used in state prisons there. And in 2014, Vermont has an incarceration rate that is nearly 40 percent lower than the national average. And that's according to data collected by the National Institute of Corrections. Um, If voters choose to strike this from the Colorado Constitution, it's still in the U.S. Constitution. Uh, What what does this mean? Uh, well, it, it means it means we haven't gone back and revisited whether we think that this is what we want our constitution to look like. Uh, I have to say it's so hard to it's so easy to amend the Colorado Constitution and so hard to amend the U.S. Constitution that it uh, it will would clearly be an uphill battle um, of a great magnitude to think about removing this language from the U.S. Constitution, um, and that would be a larger national conversation. But it's one that, again, I think people like Will and people in other states around the country are really starting as part of a larger question about how we want to relate to that history of slavery. And several other community organizations and religious communities support this initiative. Uh, Governor Hickenlooper has said he supports it. And recently, the American Civil Liberties Union of Colorado or the ACLU in a blog post encourages people to vote yes on Amendment T. Uh, Will, let's let's get kind of philosophical okay. uh, for, for, for a little bit. Uh, you've mentioned that this clause has racial implications. Uh, so if it passes in November, what kind of impact do you hope this will have? Yeah, so from a, from a racialized standpoint, okay. Um, so I think that, uh, that, the, that this, again, this is like, this has to do with like healing racial divides. Um, um, and I think that uh, one of the ways that it does that is it it starts to have a conversation with people that's like just sitting on on the surface right now in our country um, about race um, and about how people feel about race. And I think that that folks just all around are suspecting each other, you know, and, you know, statements like um, like this and in, 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 uh, Colorado making this decision to like remove the exception for slavery um, is an opportunity for folks to say, well, maybe everything that I believe about folks that are in this in the state isn't completely true. And maybe there is some hope that we as people can come together and do something around race that that is positive and that is important to so many people in this state. Um, I have a, a leader that I work with whose mother um, is um, over 100 now. And uh, the leader, her name is Sister Lee McNeil. She's at Shorter AME. And, you know, she often tells the story about her mother, you know, being, you know, just uh, two generations from slavery and like hearing the stories about slavery and and being so close to that. And so I think that um, one of the things that she says is that this would mean so much to her mother, who's over 100 years old, being African-American woman who you know, it's just so near to slavery. So, Will, uh, Melissa, thanks so much for joining us. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. Will Dickerson is with Together Colorado, a nonpartisan community organization leading the Yes on T campaign. And Melissa Hart directs the Byron R. White Center for the Study of Constitutional Law at CU Boulder. They discussed Amendment T, or the No Exception to Involuntary Servitude Prohibition. Just ahead, why Colorado isn't seeing the number of election TV ads it did four years ago. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. As Election Day nears, there may be one silver lining to what a nasty campaign is happening across the country. Fewer political ads on TV than in the past. Sandra Fish follows TV ad buying in Colorado and is here today to talk about what it's turning out to be a pretty unusual year. Hi, Sandra. Great to be here, Nathan. Uh, You found that despite it being a presidential election year with a U.S. Senate race in Colorado, political ads on TV are actually down from 2012 and 2014? That's right, Nathan. This is a really weird year for a swing state like Colorado. Let's talk about the presidential race first. In 2012, the Denver market actually led the nation during October in the number of presidential ads aired. This year, Colorado isn't even in the top 20 at this point. Mm. Um, Republican candidate Donald Trump is on the air at levels kind of comparable to Mitt Romney in 2012, but Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton hasn't been on the air since late July. If the candidates aren't buying up their usual tons of ad time, who is advertising on their behalf then? The Super PAC Priorities USA started airing attack ads against Trump in June, and they're the state's top advertiser so far this year. But I'll tell you, after this week, they're out of here. Hmm. Priorities is canceling the rest of their contracts for the last two weeks of the campaign. Apparently, they feel really confident that Clinton will win in Colorado. And there really aren't any outside groups supporting Trump in the state by going after Clinton. Four years ago, American Crossroads, a conservative super PAC, spent more than priorities in Colorado. But Crossroads is not even around this year. And that that is the difference. Uh, What exactly have the candidates and the committee spent here? Well, Clinton spent more than $2 million on more than 9,000 ads during just June and July. And Trump is spending more than $4 million on ads during late September through early November. He's actually increased his buys in Denver and Colorado Springs in the last week. And then priorities that pro-Clinton super PAC originally contracted for nearly $12 million in advertising from June through Election Day. They dropped a lot of their September advertising and most stations instead focusing on Spanish language ads on Univision and Telemundo. And with their cancellations the last two weeks, they'll probably end up spending closer to nine or $10 million. Is Colorado unusual in this seeming lack of presidential advertising? Actually, Nathan, no. This is a national trend. I talked with Erica Franklin Fowler, co-director of the Wesleyan Media Project, which tracks political advertising nationally. Certainly, you know, advertising in general overall is down, and that's a large function of the fact that we haven't seen a competitive ad war in the presidential race. It's an unusual year in presidential politics. And like Erica said, it's an unusual year for advertising in that contest. And while presidential ad buys are down, Colorado also has a big U.S. Senate race. Uh, What's happening there? Well, until late last week, all that was going on was a barrage of positive ads for Democratic Senator Michael Bennett from April through Election Day. But now Republican challenger Daryl Glenn went on the air with his own ads last Thursday for the first time in either the primary or the general election. You know, originally, Bennett was considered one of the more vulnerable Senate Democrats. If polls are correct, that's turned out not to be the case. And it's highly unusual to have a U.S. Senate race where one candidate isn't on the air until this late in the game. Again, Erica Franklin Fowler of the Wesleyan Media Project. There are a few other races in which the candidate is not advertising, but they are from safe, like purely safe seats, which even still today, Cook Report is not rating Colorado as a safe seat. Yeah, the Cook Report ranks Colorado's Senate seat as a likely Bennett win, but not safe. 
How much are Bennett and Glenn spending? Bennett is spending big, close to $9 million since April. Glenn has contracts through the next week for about only $300,000 at this point. Um, I should mention that the ads, which began airing last Thursday, aren't the first ads to support Glenn in Colorado. In late July, around the time of the party conventions, an outside group called Restoration Pack spent nearly $700,000 on two weeks' worth of ads supporting Glenn. And that super PAC is back here this week, airing ads attacking Bennett, supporting Glenn. They're spending nearly $350,000 during the next week. But still, we are seeing some political ads on TV. Isn't that right? Oh, that's totally right. And many of those ads at this point center on the 6th Congressional District race between Republican incumbent Mike Kaufman and former state Senate President Morgan Carroll. And that's definitely a hot race in the district that includes Aurora, parts of Douglas County. Uh, Tell us about the ad buys there. Well, the two candidates are running lots of ads. Kaufman has spent nearly $2 million. Carroll has spent about $2.6 million. And several congressional political action committees are airing ads there, too. On the Republican side, the National Republican Congressional Committee is spending about $5 million, though some of that money is being spent on a race in the 3rd Congressional District in south and western Colorado. In that race, incumbent Republican Scott Tipton faces former state Senator Gail Schwartz, an Aspen Democrat. The National Association of Realtors and the Congressional Leadership Fund are supporting Kaufman by airing ads. And on the Democratic side, the House Majority PAC and Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee are spending to air ads against Kaufman in favor of Carroll. And those two Democratic PACs are spending nearly $7.5 million. Are there other congressional races that you're following? That one in the third CD where... U.S. Representative Scott Tipton is trying to fight off former state Senator Gail Schwartz, an Aspen Democrat. She's got help from those Democratic congressional PACs. She's also being attacked by the National GOP PAC I mentioned. Those two candidates are airing their own ads in various markets, but the spending is way less than in the 6CD. Tipton, the Republican, has spent almost $600,000 so far, and that's triple Schwartz's spending. But just last week, the League of Conservation Voters, a national group, started airing $100,000 worth of ads opposing Tipton in Grand Junction for the rest of the month. And of course, ballot issues seem to be getting a lot of attention as well. What's spending like in that? Colorado ballot initiatives are taking up some of the slack in the presidential and Senate races. Hmm. But TV stations aren't actually required to put those contracts online, so many of them don't, but some do. We're seeing plenty of ads on initiatives to increase taxes on cigarettes, medically assisted death, an increase to the minimum wage, make it more difficult to get initiatives on the ballot. By my tally, that spending is at nearly $11 million through the end of last week. But like I said, that doesn't capture everything. So what's the total ad market look like in Colorado this year? Wrap it up with an overview. Well, overall in 2016, Colorado has seen or will see about $69 million in political ads this year, and that includes cable and satellite ads. In 2014, political ads topped $105 million without cable. So this is a pretty off year, especially when you consider it's presidential and there's a U.S. Senate race. And if you compare it to fall 2012, when the two presidential candidates aired more than $16 million of ads just in the Denver market, this year from June through Election Day, the two presidential candidates have aired or scheduled about $6 million in ads. That's a huge difference. It's just a pretty odd election year. You know, during a baseball game last week, (laughs) go Cubs, I saw a Chia Pet ad, something that usually doesn't show up until after the election because of all those political ads taking up the time. 
except it was for Trump and Clinton Shia pets. And that's what things have come to this year, Nathan. All right, Sandra, thanks for stopping by. Sure, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Sandra Fish is a data journalist who specializes in money and politics. You can read more about political TV advertising on our website at cprnews.org. Up next, scientist and inventor Nikola Tesla in his time in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Inventor Nikola Tesla might not be as famous as Edison or Marconi, but his ideas were the genesis of modern electricity, the radio, even the remote control. Tesla had a sprawling laboratory in Colorado Springs for a time. He's the subject of an American Experience documentary airing on PBS tomorrow night. Jill Jones is a historian and author featured in the program. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, First, let's hear a clip from Tesla. A hundred years ago, he pointed the way toward robots, radio, radar, remote control, the wireless transmission of messages and pictures. He dreamed of harnessing the wind and the sun to make free energy available for everyone. Jill, we know Edison and Marconi and their accomplishments. Uh, Why don't we know much about Tesla's? Well, uh, because he had one great success, as commercial success, as a scientist, and he was a very brilliant and eccentric man. And that success was inventing the system of alternating current and very specifically solving the problem of how you can run a motor using alternating current. Um, And this is a system that we uh, exist on today. So it was an enormous, truly world-changing contribution. But, uh, you know, that was back at the last turn of the century, and um, he was never able to commercialize anything thereafter. He also didn't have a company, He was not attached to an institution, and therefore his name doesn't live on. I mean, if you look at Edison, I mean, there's all kinds of um, businesses and companies that took up his name because it had such uh, glamour and um, he was, you know, the most famous inventor of his time, and I would say pretty much of all time. And Marconi is always, always associated uh, with the telegraph and and radio. So, you know, those are just two people who got a level of attention that um, Tesla had very briefly and then faded away. Now, he was pretty eccentric. And how does that play into his lack of success? I remember in the film, he, he was afraid to look at women's earrings and other things like that. Did that play into his lack of success? No, I mean, basically, he was a very visionary scientist, and his lack of success really had to do with his impracticality. I mean, he was just brimming over with ideas, but he never really took them to any kind of commercial um, reality. So, I mean, I'll just give you an example. In 1898, Tesla had invented and mastered remote control. And he brought a bunch of financiers to uh, witness him steer a very large uh, boat, you know, like five feet long, all around a lake that he had created. And as far as the financiers were concerned, this was just some sort of magic. Now, if 
Edison had made that invention because Edison was totally focused on commercializing whatever you know new inventions he had. We would have had you know garage opening uh, by remote control decades before we ever did. But you know uh, Tesla was sort of content to show people that when nothing came of it, he just moved on to the next thing. And Tesla and Edison did work together, uh, and and Tesla took some of Edison's ideas and proved on them. Uh, when he first came to America from Serbia, he he worked uh, with Edison at his company. Uh, what was their relationship like? They seemed to be very different people. Uh, well, Edison used to refer to Tesla in not a complimentary way as a poet of science. And Tesla used to say that had Edison any education or theory um, to his methods of science, he could have saved himself vast amounts of time and trouble. Um, so they just had a very different approach to life. Uh, Tesla was extremely educated, well-educated, knew many languages, and Edison left school at age 13 and was very much um, largely self-taught. I mean, he, he read his way through the Detroit Public Library, but um, so they were just very different personalities, one extremely practical and the other, uh, you know, really kind of a dreamer. And also, it seems that uh, they Tesla was very visionary. He could visualize things in his head where Edison, from from at least what I what I saw in your film or the film, uh, had to actually see stuff and see the failures and build upon those failures. Right. I mean, so when he was working on his light bulb, I mean, the, the desperately needed thing was a filament and they just tried hundreds of different kinds of um, materials before they, you know, lit upon the thing that was, you know, made the most sense. In your book, Empires of Light, Edison, Tesla, Westinghouse, and the Race to Electrify the World, you speak of three battlefields in which Tesla and Edison competed. Uh, what were they? Uh well, the the first was the electric chair. So the first use of the electric chair in the United States was um, hmm. really part of a corporate feud <laughs> where Edison was trying to show to the world that alternating current, which was being promoted by Westinghouse, uh, you know, using Tesla's patents, was so dangerous it should never be used. And just as the world talks about people being guillotined, and that was based on the inventor of the guillotine. Um, Edison talked about people being electrocuted as being Westinghoused, and they made sure that the first uh, electrocution, official electrocution, which was in New York State, would take place using alternating current uh, machines. And Tesla and Westinghouse worked together, right? Yes. So, I mean, it's, that, that is how this one particular, but I mean, absolutely key and truly, you know, world transforming technology uh, came to the market was via Westinghouse. So Westinghouse himself was an inventor. He uh, played a huge role in advancing the world of railroads because he invented the air brake, which we use to this day. Um, but he was very happy to use you know, to uh, buy other people's patents and engage them as consultants, and, and that's what he did with Tesla. And it was a long haul to get Tesla's ideas really working in the real world, which is the norm with most new technology. 
You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're talking with historian and author Jill Jones. She's featured in the documentary Tesla on inventor Nikola Tesla, airing tomorrow night on PBS. Uh, Colorado played a pretty large role in Tesla's work. Uh, how did Telluride fit into his work on hydroelectricity? Well, this was very key. And I actually was just in Telluride and finally had a chance to see this for myself. <laughs> so... <laughs> What happened is uh, the Gold King mine uh, outside of Telluride had cut down every possible tree it could in order to run its motors. And if they didn't get some kind of cheap energy, because bringing in coal was just not economic, the the mine was going to have to close. And they uh, had heard about Tesla and his AC system, and they asked the Westinghouse Company in the spring of 1891 you know, if maybe this was a solution to their problem, which is that they were, you know, miles away from where they might be able to, um, there was hydropower. So, um, you know, again, the Westinghouse company was really struggling to, to get the motor working properly, but they had the generator down. So uh, they sent a bunch of engineers out to tell you ride, and they set things up and, um, you know, used the hydropower power to uh, work the generator, and then the issue was transmitting the electricity um, 12,000 feet up the mountain and, you know, over uh, three miles, and for all of this to work through the weather that goes on in Telluride, which I'm sure anyone in Colorado has a, you know, a pretty good sense of, and um, it worked very reliably, and so this was really the the kind of pilot project and you know pioneering use of long distance um, electrical current, and that it then oper- you know successfully operated a motor because that's what was missing in this uh, you know whole equation. So it was a very big deal, and in 1892 there was a you know a big story that was uh, published in one of the electrical magazines to the effect that we have actually run this entire system. The Gold King mine is up and thriving because of our technology. And so that was really, that was very important because, you you know, you talk about these three um, sort of battles of the war of the electric currents. The first was the electric chair, and then the second was the... Um, the contract for the World's Fair, the White City, 1893 in Chicago. And the third one was who would get the contract to build a big hydroelectric plant at Niagara Falls that would then generate electricity 26 miles to Buffalo. And so the fact that they had managed to to do this was really important. And the, the engineers who worked in Telluride then got very involved in and worked on the big project at Niagara Falls. So this was all, you know, like a proving ground for this extremely new technology. And it it seems then, nearly 10 years after Telluride and that important uh, event, Tesla spent some time in Colorado Springs. What was he working on then? Well, so in typical Tesla fashion, he had gotten a bunch of money from John Jacob Astor to work on what he called the cold light. So Tesla had really sort of invented this proto-fluorescent light, and it 
promised the the possibility of much much cheaper, easier um, electric light. Uh, you know, in a in a world where there was very little electric light. So if if you had this that particular new invention, you know, you might soon begin to rival someone like Edison and Westinghouse. So Astor was very interested. He gave Tesla this money, and off Tesla went to Colorado Springs, and he was um, he was there really to do these very um, I guess we would call them cutting edge experiments that had actually nothing to do with the cold light. It really had to do with him wanting to understand what happened when you generated gigantic amounts of electricity. And what could you learn from that? So it was, I mean, it was really, you know, very basic research. And it did not have any particularly practical application. Application at all. Jill, thanks for joining us. Jill Jones is a historian and the author of Empires of Light, Edison, Tesla, Westinghouse, and the Race to Electrify the World. She's featured in the documentary Tesla airing tomorrow night on PBS's American Experience. We'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Ski areas have started making snow, and it got us thinking about all the people who will come from out of state to enjoy winter here. Not so long ago, most tourists wouldn't have dreamed of heading into Colorado's mountains. That's, of course, changed for good and for bad, says historian Bill Philpott. He's the author of Vacation Land, and he spoke with Ryan Warner in 2014. And thanks so much for being with us, Bill. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you on the show because I think you may change Coloradans' impressions of themselves. <laughs> um, you say Coloradans live a, quote, tourist lifestyle. What do you mean by that? Well, I think many of them do. I'm not, I'm not saying that's universal across Coloradans. But I think a lot of Coloradans have come to sort of think of this place as uh, a part of themselves, a sort of a personal part of themselves. And they've come to value the landscapes of the state for many of the same reasons that tourists value the landscape, uh, for recreational reasons, for leisure, and for the sense of sort of fulfillment and emotional benefits it gives them. Yeah. I mean, I suppose in the end, if you've got 10 people on a 14er, five of them live in Denver and five of them live in in Ohio, (laughs) what you're saying is there's not a fundamental difference there in terms of what? Uh, Their interest in the land, their impact on the land? I think think their ways of valuing nature are likely to be, I mean, drawing from very much the same ideas, the same set of core concepts. And I root those in the book uh, largely in the ways these landscapes were marketed and packaged. Marketed and packaged. So let's step back for a moment and see how this dynamic got started. Uh, You point out that before World War II, the so-called Colorado high country was rarely visited. Right. But by the 1970s, that had changed. A lot of people were flocking to the mountains. It's a bit absurd today to think of the fact that the mountains weren't always a destination. <laughs> right. But what what happened to change that? Well, I think uh, one of the things that interested me when I when I got into this was that was that I think a lot of people tend to think of the recreational appeal of the high country as sort of natural. It was just sort of there, and it was just sort of waiting to be discovered. Right, and we what just I, traveled to it. Right, and 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 I just what I try to talk about in the book is the ways that really had to be constructed, both in a literal sense by building the infrastructure for tourism for I-70 vacations or right something. exactly and resort towns and and even simple things like motels right or campgrounds and national forests and things like that but it also had to be constructed in our minds it had to be uh, there were, there were very deliberate efforts to reshape how people thought about the Colorado high country to get them to think about it at all in the 
first place. But then to get them to think about it in recreational terms, think about it in terms of, the, as I said before, the emotional benefits it could bring to them yeah. if they just went there. Let's talk about the infrastructure a little bit later. I-70, of course, mm-hmm. iconic for getting into the mountains. But let's mm-hmm. first talk about the psychological shift, the marketing that had to happen mm-hmm. to get people to think of the mountains that way. Mm-hmm. Who do you see as the major players in that? And when do they emerge on the scene? It's a whole mess. Uh, it wasn't a coordinated effort. Uh, it wasn't. It was a very decentralized, almost chaotic, often self-contradictory effort. There, there weren't were, a bunch of guys around a table saying, we're doing this. Well, they tried to do that at times. They tried to coordinate their efforts, but it was it was it just never really worked in a, in a super coordinated way. Huh. It involved everything from state government agencies, local boosters, local business owners, recreational enthusiasts themselves, uh, all sorts of actors involved uh, in, in trying to sort of lure people to their place, to the region as a whole, to the state as a whole. I see. So the state and local communities have an interest in luring people because of tax dollars. They mm-hmm. want they want tourists mm-hmm. to come. Mm-hmm. And then uh, for-profit companies see an opportunity to what? Cash in on the outdoors? Yeah. I mean, and a lot of it was very small time at the beginning. A lot of these were small business owners in, in you know, small mountain towns that were economically depressed in the long term from, you know, a declining ranching industry, from a from a su- supremely depressed mining industry. Yeah. They're looking for t- sort of a new way forward. And one of the ways that many of these uh, boosters and business owners started to latch on to in the 1940s, and especially by the 1950s, is tourist development. The idea that, that tourism itself, which before most people hadn't thought of as an industry unto itself, they thought of tourism as a way to get people to move to a place and especially to get them to invest in a place. But, oh, but increasingly see. after the war, uh, many people start to think of, of tourism as possibly an economic engine unto itself. Hmm. And it could perhaps replace something. This was still controversial at the time in the 1940s and 50s to think this way, but that it could potentially replace things like manufacturing, mining, agriculture as sort of the bedrock of, of the economic uh, 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 livelihood of a, of a town. Okay. And so you can you can say in, in some respects that um, – Tourism today in Colorado is like a mine tailing. I mean, it's what's left <laughs> over from mines and mining towns mm-hmm. that we're looking for the next way to stay alive. I, I think in know. some ways, yeah. And again, I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is in the 1950s, this was still pretty controversial. There was still a lot of sense, of, well, maybe tourism can bring in some more people and bring in some more money. But what we really need here is mining or what we really need here is manufacturing or some other sort of more substantial way of basing the local economy, right? And 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 so there was still a lot of debate going on. And the idea that tourism could be that economic base was still, as I said, somewhat controversial. But it really – more and more people, more and more boosters, business owners, as I said, government, uh, state government and, and local government are becoming converted to that viewpoint as the 50s go on. And history really repeats itself because now you see decaying towns, for instance, on the eastern plains. Yes. Who are looking to tourism as a yes. way to, to perhaps stay on the map. Yeah, exactly. And you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with DU historian Bill Philpott about his book, Vacation Land. Uh, so let's talk about some of the uh, infrastructure that lures people mm-hmm. into the mountains. Mm-hmm. So there's a psychological shift that has to happen, mm-hmm. and then there's this very brass tacks thing that has to happen as well. Uh, I-70 we've mentioned. And of course, the stories of how places like Aspen and Vail developed are legendary Mm -hmm. in Colorado now. Mm -hmm. But we're not just talking about ski resorts here. Um, You write that modifying lakes and rivers (laughs) so that tourists could catch more fish was Mm -hmm. part of this, Mm -hmm. making them happier. You know, you, you come back down the mountain with 
Trout, uh, tell us <laughs> tell us the story of President Eisenhower's visit in this respect. Well, President Eisenhower, um, for several summers in a row um, in the early to mid-1950s, made Colorado his summer home, in effect. Um, and he spent a lot of time fishing up in the Platte Canyon and then also up at Byers Peak Ranch um, by Fraser, up by Fraser, which is a ranch owned by Axel Nielsen, a close friend of his, a businessman in Denver. Um, and when... <laughs> When Eisenhower would come to visit Colorado, the press, of course, would follow him everywhere. Yeah. Even before he was president, he was a celebrity. You know, he was a he was a general. He was a war hero, right? And he's running for president in 1952. Uh, the press is following him everywhere, and and he goes around on his Colorado vacation, you know, playing golf and fishing and and frying his fish in the pan and so forth. And and the press is snapping away and reporting on everything he's doing. The Colorado Fish and Game Department made absolutely sure to stock St. Louis Creek where he was fishing with lots of fish to make sure that Eisenhower caught lots of fish. And where if is St. Louis Creek again? It's just, it flows into the Fraser River. Into the Fraser yeah. River. Uh, and and um, the idea was that if, you know, if the press reported nationwide, which they knew they would do, uh, reported nationwide that Eisenhower had a full creel, uh, that would that would make Colorado look really good. Right. right? And to, more to, people to would come. It was basically free marketing, in effect. Um, but if but if he struck out, if he didn't get a lot of fish, then it would look really bad, right? So so stocking the stream uh, for Eisenhower became a way of, of trying to convey to the rest of the country just how easy fishing in Colorado was, just how rewarding it was, that if you came to Colorado, you would get a full creel, uh, that you would come away fulfilled. But all this makes me wonder. When we go to the mountains and when when Eisenhower was having that experience, Mm -hmm. was he having an authentic Colorado experience? I mean, in a way, he wasn't right. It's it's stocked by by people. Mm -hmm. And our experience in the mountains is certainly defined by all of uh, what you've described already going forward. So does it change what people expect from Colorado, and I what's think, reasonable to expect? I think it does change what they expect, but I, I, I get, I, I stay very much away in the book from judging whether judging it's them. authentic or not, right? Because, because this becomes people's reality. The way the mountains are constructed for them, as I mentioned before, the way, the way they're packaged, market, it becomes how they think about the mountains. It becomes how they experience the mountains. I don't know that it's for me or anybody else to say that they're not having a true experience. What is a true experience, right? Right. If I, an authentic think, experience right. is no bathrooms, no <laughs> right. restaurants, I don't know that I right. want one. Right. And maybe some people would, right? But, but, but for, for more and more people after World War II, this kind of experience in Colorado is what they're seeking out. I don't know if there's anything inauthentic about it. It is not, however, what I would call natural in the sense it had to be deliberately constructed by people. And of course, you have so many folks today who search for a place in Colorado that still feels raw, that still yes. feels natural, right. who don't want a bathroom in a restaurant right. nearby. Right. And those get harder to come by, right. I suppose. Right. And so you must have thought a lot about the double-edged sword that tourism presents. And and that is you make more people aware of a landscape, Mm -hmm. you get them invested in it, Mm -hmm. they perhaps want to work to save it, Mm -hmm. and they love it to death. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing this in many respects in Colorado today. Talk talk about that double-edged sword. Well, I think that's one of the reasons for writing the book, I guess, is is to, uh, again, not to denigrate people and I would include myself this way, who 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 are invested personally in recreation in the mountains. Yeah, I bet but, you've taken some mountain <laughs> trips, right? Um, but 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 rather just to get us to think about where it came from, and 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 in particular how it shares 
you know, common roots and basically the same core values as tourists themselves. We tend to think of tourism now, I think there's a, there's a, I should say a wider tendency than before to think of tourism as an environmental ill, um, yeah. tourists as annoying, as superficial, as stupid, you know, and so forth. And, and, and one thing I try to do in the book is we actually have a lot more in common if we, if, if we are concerned about the effects that recreation and sort of mass consumption of the high country is having on the landscapes, on the environment of the high country, we need to see ourselves as part of the problem and therefore also as part of the solution. As opposed to casting blame, casting excursions to those over there. Exactly. On outsiders, on newcomers, on people who came after us, on people who are less permanent than us, but rather to see ourselves all as rolled into the same story in effect. Thank you so much for being with us. Fascinating stuff. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Bill Philpont teaches environmental history at the University of Denver. His book is called Vacation Land, Tourism and Environment in the Colorado High Country. He spoke with Ryan Warner in 2014. And that's our show. My auto engineers are Malcolm Hughes and Matt Hers, director Rachel Estabrook, producers Stephanie Wolf, Michelle P. Fulcher, and Anthony Cotton. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 